Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 298, and today I am joined by music royalty, production royalty, hip-hop royalty. I'm joined by DJ Shadow. I'm so pleased to put this one together. Shadow doesn't do tons of podcasts, and a lot of his interviews in the past have been very production-based, tech-based, and stuff like that, so it was great to sit down and just kind of go over his whole career um yeah it was cool we talk a lot about his new album apathetic age which comes out on november 15th you, you can pre-order that now it's a beast of a record you're going to hear about it and it's yeah it's super interesting i don't want to ramble on too much in the intro but there is one thing i need to, t- to tell you about um i'm in a film the film's called kill ben like and it's proper mad because, like, my name's on the poster and everything. And I've been acting a while now, but this is the first time I've had anything that my name's, like, on the poster. It's I'm really proud of it. Um, it's a dark comedy murder mystery. Um, and it's getting a cinema release. But it's, it's with a thing called Our Screen. So, basically, the tickets are only on sale until November 17th. The screenings are on November 22nd, 23rd and 24th and they're all around the country. But they're only on sale until November 17th and the screenings only go ahead if a a minimum order is reached of tickets and you only get charged if the minimum order is reached, fear not. Um, But the cool thing I wanted to tell you about is I'm on the Friday, on the Friday, Saturday and the Sunday, the cast and crew are going to be appearing at a load of the screenings um, and I'm going to be at three of the screenings on the on the friday so i'll be at the odeon swiss cottage at six o'clock and we'll be doing a kind of pre-screening q a and you know when you see like it's proper exciting for me because i'm a film nerd but you know when you go and they like bring some of the cast out and the director introduces the film we're going to be doing that and you can take a photo and we'll be stood there going like oh mad we're in a film and then we'll be at the view piccadilly um, that's at seven o'clock. I think we're doing a Q&A after that screening and we'll be at the Sh- View Sh- Shepherd's Bush to do a presentation before the screening. So again, the Odeon and a Shepherd's Bush ones like will be coming out and going like, hey, here we are. Like, hopefully having a quick chat and saying, enjoy the film. And then at the View Piccadilly, we're going to be doing a Q&A after the screening. Um yeah, I know at the moment it's myself, the the director, Erwan, uh, Daz Bl- Bl- Black, I think is coming to that one. And then, yeah, also on Saturday and Sunday, so on Saturday at the Odeon Wimbledon at 3.30 and the Swiss Cottage Odeon again at 8.30. And then on Sunday, the G- G- Genesis Cinema in Mile End at one o'clock. A load of my friends and family going to that one, which is cool. I'm not going to be there, but it's exciting. Um, and then the view... Piccadilly again at four o'clock on the Sunday. There'll be other members of the cast and crew um, at those ones, so it's really exciting. Please come and buy tickets. As I said, the tickets are only on sale until November seventeenth, so I urge you to get the tickets now. As you will have, you may have heard in either of last week's episodes, I'm doing a thing that I heard. I nicked off a comedian called Theo Von, and he does this on his tours. Um, if you're listening in and you're a single parent, and you're thinking, I'd love to go to that, but I'm a single parent, reach out to me on social media. Easiest way is DMing me on Facebook, um, and I'll I'll sort out covering your childcare costs. 
Um, you, you don't need to buy the ticket yourself. And if you if you want some friends to go, get them to turn all that. But yeah, I'll sort that out because um, yeah, it's a tough gig that a uh, single parent in Larks. It's a fair play. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's all. I'm sorry I've rambled on. I'll shut up now and let's l- listen to the legend, DJ Shadow. Right, well, I'm rolling, and I'm I'm here today with DJ Shadow. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Are you you're 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 fresh in the country for a couple of days, and then around Europe for a bit while we're still part of of Europe. So it's kind yes. of a, it's a good time to get that promo yeah. in one go. Yeah. Do you are you enjoying the kind of the the promo runs and and, and the European press side of things? Well, to be totally honest, this is literally I'm two hours into press on the album. Wow. Yeah. Like, I'm just starting. Yeah. So I think at a certain point, you get asked the same questions and you end up in this kind of, you get your talking points down. Yeah, of course. And that's a comfortable place. But at the same time, it does make it all feel a bit cookie cutter, which is why at the moment, um, we're freewheeling a little bit. It's a weird balance, isn't it? Because you do get those set sound bites, as you say, that kind of come together. Mm Mm-hmm. And as an artist, it can make you feel like you're being fake because you're regurgitating the same shit. But in yeah. reality, they're the essential bits that need to be got across about well, yeah. the record. So it's a weird balance, personally, to kind of go, right, I'm repeating yeah. the same things, but... And you're never sure when the idea or the, the message is going to germinate and actually spread. Yeah. Because lots of times you can try to sort of plant the seed and it doesn't grow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have definitely seen in the past where maybe at a, you know, badly guarded moment you sort of say something that's phrased in a way that that you know it's kind of like it takes on a life of its own or whatever and and yeah you're kind of like fuck i just thought i was just doing some shitty interview yeah <laughs> somewhere and then it just spreads <laughs> and and uh, in this era there's no way to ever wipe that away no and people love jumping on the one bit of of out of context yeah. material rather than any other explanations yeah. you could completely within a day you could go oh no that's not what i meant yeah. that isn't going to spread well it's I'll the out of context what. bit that's going to spread well not only that i mean first of all i would never want to be like can you imagine being a coach of a team yeah because you have to talk every single day yeah, yeah, yeah and you have to talk for like an hour and there's unguarded moments and you think you're sort of cool with this reporter over there or whatever but they're just waiting for that one fuck up, that yeah. one slip up, or a player, you know, same thing. You at least in the states, like you're on a basketball team, you must, you have to talk. It's yeah, like you you have to talk. If you don't, you get fined. And I can't, I just can't imagine. It just seems a bit inhuman. Yeah, to be completely guarded at to be all guarded times. Is that all? Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of like how we're all becoming a bit. Yeah, you know what I mean, I mean, certainly. Yeah, so I don't know. It's um, <laughs> it's all good fun, though, isn't it? It's what, it's what I love about podcasts is, in general, the good ones at least, uh, we don't send any clips or outtakes 
to the press or whatever else. And the reality is, journalists these days are lazy. Yeah. So they're not willing to uh, to listen to an hour to find that one bit of scandal. So it's kind of if we're not sending it out, it's like we can talk freely, we can engage, we can explain things, and it doesn't have to be ripped out of context and put as this. (gasps) Did did, uh, did you hear what TJ Shadow said? It's outrageous. And it's not as though anything I'm going to say is earth shattering on any level, but um, I mean, I remember once doing an interview for a magazine. And it was a magazine that had always been really supportive, had me on the cover several times. And I was working on an album I was really excited about. And there was a, the question was asked, and it was a fair question. It was basically, are you worried that you might alienate some of your older fans? Mm-hmm. And I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but in a sort of, I don't know, jaunty moment. I just kind of, you know, feeling good about the record. I just kind of said, well, fuck them because they already have the first album. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? They like, they've got that stuff. And obviously you don't mean literally like fuck my fans. Yeah. That's not what you're saying, but in a sort of one to one kind of person, friend to friend way of saying it, you might just kind of say, well, fuck them because, um, you know, you've got that, that, like that music already exists. That's, That's it's never going away. I'm certainly never going to take it away. Well, people seem to have the weird misconception that a new record gets recorded over all previous records, right, right, and that's right. it. Now, so we no, only no, have that's one still tape. there. That's still there. It's still We've there. You keep still using it. the same reel, like 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 DJs used to in the old days of radio. Yeah. But um, no, but you know. And then the next thing I knew, that was like the pull quote. Mm. You know what I mean? On the very first, like, Fuck setting the tone of the entire campaign. And then it becomes that thing of, you know, how do you sort of walk that back? You can't. It's impossible. And and this is in an era before social media. Yeah. But, you know, you learn from these things, right? And yeah. You, you, but it does make you more guarded. I'm definitely just just taking an audible quote of you saying, fuck them. <laughs> no, well, I mean... Walking it back, I think, is key here because because we're here to talk about a, 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 your new a record and Apathetic Age, right? And um, uh, there's so much I want to talk about there. But I think uh, b- b- before getting that to that, you do need to go back because I feel your history is essential to this record and not necessarily your history of when a lot of those fans first came to you. Sure. It's your history of... of being a DJ at school and, and 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 learning to scratch and being a rap fan. So, so what was your kind of school school years like? You were growing up in kind of when rap was still quite young. Yeah. Um, how was that? And, and and was there a lot of your friends into rap, or were you the kind of the one guy digging crates and whatnot? So where I grew up, I think you know this is one of the reasons I always had kind of a sympathetic view with people from other parts of the world as pertained to hip-hop culture because, you know, early on I toured with people like DJ Crush. Yeah. He grew up in a place that was just as removed as where I was. And I imagine if you were in a small town in the UK, you felt the same. It's like you, you, you could have been anywhere on the planet. All you knew is that something really exciting and really vital was happening to a, in a place that you couldn't get to. Yeah, and pre-internet as well, so really well, yeah. couldn't get to, couldn't access oh. in... I mean, literally, you, like, there were no magazines. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's so much to talk about. But um, going right back to the beginning, I remember, you know, 
I grew up in in a small town in Northern California, and the first time I remember rap being discussed, it was there was a kid who had memorized Blondie's rap on yeah. Rapture, <laughs> yeah, and could yeah. do the whole thing, yeah. And I remember this same kid when Genius of Love by Tom Tom Club came out, although you know not necessarily a true hip hop or rap record. It it obviously had these little elements of the culture yeah. in it. And I remember him explaining to me who Bohannon was. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and just little things like that. You just have conversations with kids and you try to seek out people that seem to have an inside track. Because like I said, there was, you know, certainly growing up in the States, Spin Magazine, Rolling Stone, they didn't want anything to do with hip hop. Yeah. Um, or if it if they if it was it was you know because they were trying to prop classic rock on their shoulders right yeah. that was and punk and like that narrative that that lineage and then on on the sort of R and B side there was this like oh, what is this stuff you know what I mean no it's we're trying to put cool in the gang on top like yeah. you know and so um, you just had to seek the information. I mean, I remember seeing a, a news report about beatboxing. And this is in 1983. They had the Fat Boys, but they weren't even the Fat Boys yet. It was yeah. the Disco 3. And, and just, you know, them standing in, in, I think, Times Square somewhere or somewhere downtown. And just seeing that energy in, the, in, the, in New York City and the way they were dressed and, and the slang and everything like that. It's the same as if you were growing up in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's this like, wow, something's happening. It's so different. It has nothing to do with our parents' shit. Yeah. It's totally new. So it was just this seeking out. And then I eventually asked my dad, who, you know, was kind of – is kind of hip, seems to have his fingers in a lot of different things – I said, do you know what rap is? And he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, do you know, is there any radio station that around here that I could find that would play it? He said, well, you should try KSOL because that's the soul station. Maybe right. they'll be playing it. So the night I discovered that radio station, it was like I had a fever. You know what I mean? And I'm sure so many, like the first time Capital FM played this record or, you know what I mean? I think everybody has these stories. Of, yeah. Like, oh, there's, it's actually happening. There's somebody who knows what it is and they're trying to do it and they're trying to, and it's even in the mix, you know, and, and so recording those radio shows and meeting up with this friend of mine um, named Stan Green, who was the best graffiti artist in school. And literally it just felt like he and I, I guess, against the entire student body, not that people were against it necessarily, but they just didn't know, they had no, no way of knowing it. Yeah. And we were the most interested in seeking it out. And occasionally a kid would come around from Sacramento and maybe his older brother was a DJ and he had a tape of some rap jams. And that's how you that's how you discovered this stuff. Do you think those early days of having to seek it out meant l less kind of – and again, it, it was really in its, its youth there. Do you think it, it meant less negativity towards – hip-hop and rap I, th I think in those days just anything you found that was loosely in that area was exciting you might be like oh that's not as good as that or, like the blondie rap is a perfect example yeah. you'd be like well cool it's not really what i'm after but it's cool that it's rap and it's there yeah. and it's it's something i reflect re reflect upon a lot in the modern era of rap when people are 
and again at that point you, there was no real comparison whereas now people will constantly be it's not as good as this era or it's not as good as that era or this person isn't good as that and it's kind of i remember the days particularly living in the uk when just having any was exciting now we've got so, so much we're shitting on some of it and yeah, saying oh, yeah. f- fuck that stuff and it's, it's like you don't have to listen to it but be excited that it's there be excited that it's all at the table yeah i mean and that's certainly one thing i learned growing up in the era that i did with you know um the first bush administration and, and yeah it was that time of censorship and and the pmrc and there was real concern over the message messaging of hip-hop and rap and so living through that era, that's why I'll never dump on, you know, any youth music. Yeah. Because, you, I mean, I'm 47 right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I know that music that's – that the kids at the high school, you know, down the street from where I live, that's not meant for me. Yeah, yeah. Don't talk about shit you don't understand. And it's so mad that, that we will have all been the kids looking at our parents or whoever else going, you don't understand our yeah. music, yet we won't see ourselves in that now we're, when we're going, oh, this mumble rap shit. It's like, exactly. You're, you're, you're the parent from back then going, I don't get this. It's, but it's not real music. Time, you know, and I know we're deviating and whatever you can, we can edit go wherever it, we want. Match it's it, all good. But, um, you know, I do also think, though, it's okay – to be honest, I mean, as I've gotten a bit older, I kind of am like, all right, well, the majority of the stuff that seems to be winning in rap, I, I, I just don't really – I, I realize it's not for me. And I also am not getting any real nutritional value from it lots of yeah. times. So I think it's okay at a certain point to kind of go, all right, I think I get it. I, I've listened to plenty of uh, you know Memphis rap from the mid '90s that sounds almost identical to a lot of the stuff yeah. that's out now, um, and you kind of go, okay, cool. I'll just wait for the next thing. You yeah, know what I mean, not every musical moment affects people the same way. Affects you the same way. Affects 100%. me the same way. And I, you know, I frankly kind of feel like we're admired in a bit of a rut right now. Yeah, but. That's just in one person's opinion, and it doesn't mean shit ultimately to and, to anybody. And you never know the the butterfly effect of of the effect it will have. In that, I mean, from what the vibe I got, and from what I've I've loosely heard in the past, where hip hop is often cyclical, and and as said, you'll see early to mid nineties. There was a period where the rap kind of went away from your public enemy and 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 your daylor and people like that, and that seemed to be what maybe inspired you to go and produce introducing kind of going right. Let's I, let's I'm sick of rappers at the moment. Like <laughs> let's let's make something that isn't about them. Let's make something that's about the music and and, and looking at maybe all the music you heard when you were tuning in to try and find rap. And weren't finding it, but you were finding the roots and the right. and the slight connections. So, is that the case that there was a period of rap that didn't inspire you in a positive way, but maybe inspired you to go off and create something that would inspire? You know, I think more more than that, it was when I was growing up listening to rap, the music side and the vocal side were equal. Um, yeah. In the in the sense that you know, oftentimes the DJ even got top billing, um, and so there was a, a mutual kind of like okay, there was emphasis on the beats, emphasis on innovation with the music, emphasis on faster and better scratching and more complicated wordplay or or whatever you know, new innovations lyrically, 
at a certain point when the mainstream media affixed itself to hip hop, it was just much easier to elevate the rapper because the rapper was the one who was taking the stand. The rapper yeah. was the one who was saying, kill the police. The rapper was the one saying, do this to women or whatever. And it, it was controversy, right? And yeah. the DJ, meantime, is just sort of in the background with the turntables going, yo, can we, let's talk about how the music is made. But that wasn't really as sexy or as interesting to the mainstream media. So, you know, once that divergence happened, it sort of gave, I think, the lyric side room for the first time to sort of get a little bit indulgent. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I love, I mean, literally, NWA, you can go all the way back to the very first world-class Wrecking Crew 12-inch. I was a huge fan of every aspect of that movement, from world-class Wrecking Crew to Ice Cube when he was in CIA to, you know, like the electro stuff, the fast stuff, the slow stuff, and then the Dope Man 12-inch, and like watching that progression... And then all the way up to Straight Outta Compton. Now, Straight Outta Compton had such a massive effect on rap that, yeah, certainly by 92, 93, it was less resonant to me to hear a warmed over recycling of Straight Outta Compton again. So, yeah, I I started seeking inspiration elsewhere, whether it was drum and bass. I remember the first time I heard um, Jungleist stuff coming out of cars in the UK when I first started coming over here and kind of going fuck what is that that's incredible <laughs> yeah and just wanting to know and and i think it's no different than when i was 10 years old sitting there scanning through the radio going all right i i can't take any more of this shit you know what i mean like i remember the radio station where i grew up the number one song in 1982 was stairway to heaven yeah which had been out for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of sitting there going, okay, there's something wrong with this. Yeah. Like, I love that music now, and I, you know, I've rediscovered rock through hip hop and everything, and I, I, I get it, but there's something wrong with any movement where it's celebrating something that's 10 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, seeking something new, new life, whether it's freestyle fellowship for me on the West Coast or um, just always seeking that new. And for a lot of people, though, rap was breaking through on the radio and they wanted more of the kind of like the danceable stuff and they wanted this and they wanted that. So I think what happened really is just through its own success, rap just spun off into 10 or 12 different directions. And then it for, you know, in the in like 91, 92, if you were doing a rap show in California, you were doing it with every type of rapper. Yeah. All on the same bill. In other words, you had conscious rap with gangster rap, with this, with that, like too short inspired rap. And our early show posters are reflective of that. Like we were doing shows with people like Herm or Eleven Five or like these hardcore rap groups. It'd be, because it'd be put together like a, a circus, right? You need your high flyer, but you need your muscle man as well, and well, you need this. You know, it's having that variation in there. Yeah, I, I just think that there wasn't enough support to sustain all of these different offshoots mm. going off on their own. Yes, but very so quickly, it's just a rap show. Yeah, and I imagine it must have been the same out here as well. But at a certain point, there it was so big that then it was like, okay, G Funk. That's yeah. a thing. Yeah. It's it's over here. You know, um Nas inspired hip hop, kind of that like more street biggie, you know, the that you connecting the dots from Cool G rap to Nas to Biggie, etc. That's over here. And then you have 
people doing more kind of like they're playing raves and they're doing that. What is that? Oh, and then turntableism and then this and that. So that's a, I'm glad the podcast is long because yeah. I, as you can see, I have a tendency. <laughs> or, to, or tangents are good. There's two things I'm, I want to pick up on from that. And one is just a personal st- story because it's, it's funny. You mentioned the, the switch from the MC being at the front from the pro- producer. I, I, when I was getting my first record deal, was literally up the road here at XL. We had a meeting, and I was in a group called Dan Lassac versus Scroobius Pip, and Dan Lassac was the producer. And we were having this meeting, and we meet a lot of labels, and we sat down with a Richard in his office up the road there, and he said, it can't be Dan Lassac at the start. The producer can't be the start. It's the rapper at the front. And we paused, and I looked up, and I just pointed behind him, and he had a huge print of Eric B and Rakim. I was like, well, there you go, man. It, yeah. it can be. It can be. It's like these things are doable. It depends depends how you make them. But I think the UK is a really relevant part to your story and journey because it felt like when you were making and introducing, it felt from here there wasn't anything like that going on in America, whereas it was more comparable to what was going on in, in Bristol with Massive Attack and Tricky right. and all these kind of more... Portishead. Building sounds and Portishead, yeah, completely. So, how was that to kind of be where you were and maybe feel that you were at home somewhere else? I, you know, fortunately, okay. So here's here's where it all connects. That seeking out, that outreach of trying to find out about hip hop culture, it from any source in the '80s, as we talked about, led me to discovering. Melody Maker and the Enemy. Right. Because I walked into a newsstand in the town I lived in with population 40,000. And there were two English ladies who ran a newsstand and they imported all these magazines. Oh, wow. And I walk in and Sweet Tea is on the cover of the Melody Maker. Yeah. And I went, whoa, that's fucking crazy. And I bought it and... You know, then in ME, they had a big Just Ice article, and I'd open it up and it'd say, you know, Norman Cook's top 10 breakbeats. And I didn't know who Norman Cook was, but he's talking about breakbeats. Okay, great. I can take this list and go to my record store in town and try to find. So, strangely, it was much easier to read about hip hop culture here than it was in the States. There was no Source yeah. magazine yet. And then I started getting a magazine called Soul Underground um, from the UK. And it was just that. It was any underground black music, basically. So that's why when James Lavelle from Moax first reached out, I wasn't on some like, who from where? (laughs) Fuck that. I'm trying to make it here in America. You know what I mean? It was more kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Oh yeah, massive attack, definitely. Um, okay, this, that, that. Yeah, Derek B. Um, you know, Syndicate, whatever. You know, C- Cash Crew, whoever yeah. I knew about from the UK from reading magazines. Um, and and also, I, you know, I've never really thought about this before, but just Public Enemy recording the intro for their album at the Brixton, Brixton Academy, Academy. Yeah, I mean that's a statement in yeah, a weird right. kind of way. It's yeah. kind of like it tells people. You know, London, England, that's the very first thing you hear. Mm. London, England. So, you know, you, you know right away that something is going on, at least there, if not everywhere else. Yeah. 
So yeah, that's that's why when Lavelle called, you know, being from from here, and I, I kind of was like, okay, this could be interesting. You know yeah. what I mean? And connecting it in my own way with those classic rock, like classic rock roots, I couldn't get away from with Hendrix and understanding his journey about kind of just floating around the states, not really feeling appreciated, and then three months of being in the UK, and he's yeah. got a band, and he's got an album, and he's so, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but it, at least it was kind of like there was a voice reaching out saying, this stuff you're doing, I want you to pursue that personal voice that yeah. like, I, I hear what you're trying to do. I want you to take it further. And as an artist, that's all you want is somebody. It's massive, isn't it? Yeah, to, it to, to have that acknowledgement that you're not just noodling in your own mind and exactly. no one will get it. Just to exactly. go, all right, this is going somewhere. Because at the moment... I was in the process of losing that person who was Dave Funkenklein, yeah. who was a, you know, he was a promo man at Def Jam and then we, uh, did a lot of writing for a few magazines prior to the source and then in the source. And then he got asked to start his, or sort of A&R Hollywood basic. Right. And, but he, his health was going bad because he had tumors on his spine. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, this is the same guy who signed Organized Confusion, who did yeah. all these things in 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 hip-hop and uh yeah he was dying and i had lost that voice saying no that shit you're doing it's weird i like it do the weird shit um and then james lavelle basically stepped in at that moment and said the same thing yeah so so how or was it to kind of have that explosion start so far from home is it felt like a lot of people in america would hear of you and think you're a uk act because you were coming out of that that mowak scene that was so exciting and the people were were hunting to find more stuff from and and delve into so but you're 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 not a uk act so it's yeah how was that to kind of have those those ripples grow um interesting i mean I, i definitely think initially it was kind of schizophrenic in the way that uh, I had already put out a few 12 inches in the States that Lavelle had heard, or he heard a couple of them. So certainly in California, I had a reputation. And also, going even further back, I was actually an unsigned hype in The Source, which is the same yeah, platform yeah. that Mob Deep and Biggie and a lot of other people had been given. And that was just from sending tapes out in the mail. Yeah, um, I was also doing mixes on the main radio station in the Bay Area. Um, so I had all these different little things going on, but, you know, again, before the internet, how do you expose yourself to this town or that city or the, you just kind of have to hope for word of mouth to happen. And yeah, all these different little things were happening, but James was, you know, especially in the early days, he was very determined. Yeah. And he had endless energy and he just seemed to be able to find ways to make things happen. Yeah. And get people on side and get favors done. And, and he did have a cohesive vision from the beginning about what he wanted his label to be. And I think all of that helped. I mean, I the first time I came over here, I was on a bill with like a couple other acid jazz acts. And I just kind of would go, all right. Um, yeah, I don't really see how this fits into my thing at the moment, <laughs> but um, I'm not going to shit on it either. It's kind of like I see it's doing its own thing. But that was something that I used to spend endless amount of time trying to steer out here yeah. in the press or, you know, with people that I was engaging with was that, no, I 
you can't call my shit acid jazz because I didn't know what it was two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so how could it be that? You know yeah. what I mean? And then, I've yeah. never heard of this thing you're calling me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't I, be part of that. I mean, or they would say like, oh, so you must have been really influenced by Massive Attack and, and uh, uh, Nightmares on Wax and yeah. stuff like that. And I'd kind of go, well, no disrespect to those artists, but I didn't grow up listening to them. I, I, yeah. I, I wasn't really aware of their music. This track is dope, and that, and I definitely see. Oh, and Wild Bunch. Okay, yeah, yeah. I see. I see the roots of it. Okay, yeah. dope. But you know, it was James's thing. It wasn't my thing. Yeah. James was massively influenced by those groups. Of course. So, how was it then to work with James um, on on Uncle? Because was that your first kind of experience of collaborating on that that side of things? Because it, it must be quite unusual. Because particularly with the feel and the the depth and richness of of introducing it kind of it it speaks to you being on your own a lot and really right. digging deep and really having time to explore and then when you're finished coming out and going here it is so how was that to jump into the the collaboration pool and be be making stuff w- with someone else yeah it was a challenge but at the same time that was a challenge that i wanted yeah. um because introducing was a very solitary process and at that time Towards the end of it, it almost felt it, it was almost intolerable to be on my own that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I could I could do it now, no problem, because I feel like I'm just more of a solitary person now. Yeah, but at that time, I mean, I was, you know, when you're in your early 20s and the synapses are firing and you, you just want to be with your crew, you want to be with your people. Yeah, and I was already, you know, making stuff with the Soul Sides guys, Black Alicious, etc. So. Working with others wasn't so much the challenge, but it was, I knew James wanted to bring in, you know, people from the rock world and from this world and that world. Yeah. And that was the, you know, there was no gorillas, if you recall, at yeah. that time. I yeah, mean, this was this was genuinely a, a, a new concept. I mean, sure, occasionally, you know, a rap group would w- work with a rock group, but it always ended up having this kind of novelty feel. Yeah. Where, or, or walk this way. Exactly. Kind of, here yeah, it is. Yeah. Here's the rock rap. The, Exactly. The rock rap song. Yeah, we yeah. got to have one of these on the record. Got to have a, a reggae rap on the record. Yeah. Got to have a love yeah. rap on oh, the record. The reggae rap period was always the most uncomfortable because it, it feels so disingenuous on certain records. I agree. <laughs> so, I agree. Here we are. Here is here's, here's the reggae song. No, yeah. don't do that. Don't don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do don't it. Do um, <laughs> so I mean, that was the challenge, and it, and it seemed new and it seemed fresh, and and I, I relished the idea of not having to be alone in the studio yeah. and also learning from. In proper engineers. I mean, I to say I was self-taught even sounds like a some praise I don't deserve. I mean, I, I literally didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, literally didn't know what I was doing. I mean, was that scary when coming in and working with Lavelle? I mean, obviously you built up a relationship, but there's still that feeling of oh, everything I've created. You've heard the finished article. You've not seen how I got there, yeah. and how I got there could be the biggest mess in the world. It's like I've solved the the, uh, the sum. But if you look at my book, there's dick pics, there's right. scribbles, right. there's there's everything. You know, I don't want you to see the working out. Yeah, I mean, I told him, I said up front, like I don't want to be the engineer for this because I don't know yeah. how to mic a vocalist properly, or if somebody's going to play an instrument, I wouldn't know the first thing about how to mic a a piano or a guitar or a drum kit or something like that. So right from jump, I said, yeah, no, I, I, I'll make the beats. I'll, I'll produce it. But, um, 
I did not want to engineer it. And yeah, I still wouldn't want to, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it's just that, that side of sound, I have too much respect for to do it badly. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, and again, particularly as well, if, if the world that you're actually coming from, despite the perception that people have because of the Bristol scene and the perceived influences, you might be comfortable on that uncle record when Mike D's in the studio, but what the hell are you going to do with Tom York? And, you know, these kind of things like that. It's like that's, it's so many different worlds that it takes, yeah, a massive collaborative effort. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, at that time... There was this sort of comfort. I've never really expressed this before, but if you were working in hip hop in the mid nineties, you knew you were on top. Yeah. And you looked around at all the other rock groups and you just kind of went, all right, that's cool. It's, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> <Yeah>. it's cool. <laughs> yeah. And. Or that feeling that in a genre, the best has already come. Well, Z- and Zeppelin knew- have already existed. The Stones have already existed. There's going to be new stuff. Yeah. Whereas in rap, it felt as if the best was still happening yeah. or yet to come. So that's I think that's a, possibly that a more eloquent way to phrase it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't walk around with that kind of ego or attitude to ever say something like that out loud. But there was this, I, you know, in retrospect, looking back, it did. You know, we kind of all looked around and went, "We're where it's at." Yeah. And I'm happy, like, I wasn't intimidated to work with any of those guys because, first of all, they were, for the most part, lovely to work with and, and totally different than you expected. I mean, I forget what, the very first time I met Tom, he came, he approached me and was like, I love the album, blah, 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 you know, because we were doing something for, a, like, a Dazed and Confused party or something. Yeah. And uh, it was, like, 95 no, ninety six. It had to have been ninety six because the album was out, but it had just been out. Yeah, and I remember, I remember being really surprised that somebody from that world, because the worlds were still so divided at that time. I mean, rock people did not listen to or like rap by yeah, and large, hundred percent, and rap people did not listen to and like. But yet, it's funny that we're talking about Tom York because it seemed to me that by two thousand, Radiohead was the one act that you could talk about with rap guys yeah in in the states yeah yeah it was the one group that kind of crossed over on their own terms and there was something in that music that resonated with you know a lot of the the younger people that i would talk to that were making beats it's like yeah "Yeah, radiohead okay cool wow interesting it's fascinating to find those ones that that cross over because i kind of i grew up first into like punk and metal and hardcore and stuff like that and then into hip-hop and you realize that in that scene Cypress Hill, Jurassic Five, the Beastie Boys are the ones that the rock kids will listen to, and then you then explore the the depth for things to come. So, having explored all of that, what what was the kind of impetus behind the decision to 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 move away from Uncle and and to continue exploring who DJ Shadow was at that stage? Well, for me, it was only ever a one album thing. Yeah, and. I think sometimes people forget that there was Uncle before me, you know, yeah, with yeah, Tim Goldsworthy and James and and Kudo from uh, Massive uh, from Mass, uh, Major Force. Sorry, yeah, it's been a while since I've talked about some of these things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for me, it was a it was a one album thing, and 
I don't know. I always knew that I was going to do another solo album after Uncle. I don't know that I knew that I would never do another Uncle record again until the end of it. Right. Simply because James and I had grown so far apart by that time. And um, I just think it's one of those things where you kind of see behind the curtain a bit and go, oh, that's disappointing or whatever. Right, yeah. You know, and 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 you just kind of go, okay, cool. Super happy I did it once, but that's all it's ever going to be. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think introducing got the ears of so many um, 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 amazing people from Q-Tip to Zach Delarocca, um, but it's an instrumental record. As a rap fan, surely you were excited to have the ear of these MCs and then to maybe to get some of these guys that are possibly the people who you listen to who got you into hip-hop in the first place. If right. you're looking at people like Q-Tip and going, let's make some music. But then there might also be a feeling that the expectation from your fan base is going to be this instrumental uh, yeah. trip-hop, acid jazz, so on and so forth. So how do you, you balance the desires of you as a human and as a rap fan and you as an artist who has a fan base? It's tough. I mean, I think um, what I learned from all of my heroes yeah. and even people outside of hip-hop that I started to, you know, kind of become aware of and explore in the 90s, people like Neil Young or, you know, you kind of follow the chart of this jazz artist or this artist and you go, wow, how are they able to still be doing it after 20 years? Because when you're in your 20s, 20 years seems like forever. Yeah. And what I realized even back then was they remained true to themselves and they didn't worry about, you know, whether they were on a mountain peak or a valley when it came to their connection to the mainstream. They just followed their path. Yeah. And occasionally it intersected with the mainstream. Occasionally it didn't. But, you know, for me, I I didn't start making music to make pop records or anything like that. And I never have. So... To the extent that introducing connected with people, obviously I was excited. But as far as I as as I was concerned, it was like, well, great. Then they're going to love this. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was true to myself then, and I'm super true to myself now. Yeah. And then when the private press came out, and there was, I remember one of the reviews out here was shadow of a doubt. Right. Wow. As if to sort of say, mm, maybe he's not who we thought he was. Yeah. And um, I kind of went. Okay. Um, and as that, you know, sort of played out and, you know, it, it has its share of support. It also had its share of like, why doesn't this feel like introducing felt? Yeah. And it was sort of painful at a time, but then you kind of realize, I, I started to realize like, well, okay, as a listening fan, didn't I kind of feel the same way about the second Cypress Hill album? And didn't I kind of feel the same well, way about the second day? I mean, album? I've had a theory for a long time that the whole difficult second album thing is for the fan base, not the artists. Yeah. The difficult second album is you got to know this person from one record and you've built this whole persona for them. You've connected personal things and personal histories. Now you get to know them a bit better and it might not be the person that you've, you've exactly. mythologized. So exactly. yeah, it's exactly that. It's that you have that with so many records that are, oh, I didn't, I wasn't as into the second one. It's like, it's fine, but then but it's if, they, for you. if they keep at it, yeah, you might 
come back in at the fourth album yeah. or you might or by the seventh album you're like okay fuck i get it you know what i mean so i always kind of held on to that and just thought i'm i'm going to play to my most ardent fan you know what i mean in other words i want i'm going to play to and i'm going to make music for myself and the most sophisticated fans not yeah. not the sort of peripheral in and out here here and today and gone tomorrow type fans um and i've always had the perception or the the taking it for granted that the genuine fans understand that it's a that it's a journey and that it's a process yeah and that's made it a lot easier as i've gotten older to to kind of go okay wow um this this project it was really difficult to make feel really good about it oh the reception wasn't what i thought mm okay too bad but maybe next time you know yeah. what i mean maybe as the earth turns and i'm here and they're there maybe it'll the two will meet in the middle again and it's it's kind of played out that way there's been highlights and lowlights and everything in between stuff that i thought would be massive that went nowhere yeah stuff that i thought was going to be nothing that blew up you know what i mean and you can't and, predict it yeah yeah certainly as an artist i think i'm the last person to be able to predict yeah well i mean as you can see there's a lot of things i want to talk to you about but i'm worried that we're not going to get to talk about the record that we're here to talk about so i'm going to fast forward now because this feels for me like the payoff of that journey it feels huge um the press pack says it's inspired by dark and troubled times we live in and the title suggests that but for me there's real light in this record and vibrancy and it's a full feeling kind of yeah. s sound so how was it to to put this together and does it feel different from previous records to you does it feel like there's something else there yeah, I think I think one of the pivotal moments in the process of making the record came when it was suggested to me that wouldn't it be amazing if I did a double album? Yeah. And I always like to respond to, you know, bars set by somebody. I mean, that's why I always thought I, I think I functioned so well with an A&R man or, or somebody that I'm making music for that challenges me and pushes me yeah. um, because I like to be challenged. And that was, you know, a bar that was set fairly early on in the process. And I kept it in mind, wasn't always sure that I was going to make it even, you know, April of this year, wasn't quite right. sure. Um, but that was the goal. And as I was making the music, it also occurred to me that, well, this is interesting, about half of the music I've made so far is instrumental and about half is beats for MCs or vocalists. And to me, there are two very different thought processes, two very different lanes. And I went, maybe it would be interesting if I try, you know, and again, then it was like, okay, that's my goal. One disc that's instrumental or one suite of music that's instrumental and one that's vocal. And um, that really freed me up, I think, to pursue some of my more out there arrangement ideas and, yeah. and, and, yeah, it, it just really kind of freed me up. And, and um, before I knew it, I had made more music than I had ever made in the, you know, the same amount of time span. And so I think all of that was really important in informing the process and, and just being able to, like I said, be as eclectic as I want to be. Yeah. And, and I think that's separating of the two 
it feels like a breakthrough in 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 the way it's produced because there isn't that feeling of you've got this instrumental track but how am i going to lead this back to you know a a, a, a vocal led track and yes. things like that it's yes. like right no we can just we can lead it it's leading to something that i didn't even know it was leading to and it goes off more but then also it gives room for a list of collaborators that is just m- mouth watering and just to go over a few you've got nars ghostface raekwon Ferramont, who is i put up as maybe the best of all time um run the jewels Dayla, P- push a t lower corner how how's the process of working with all these di- different people are there people that you worked in the studio w- w- with are there some that you worked remotely with what was the the process there or the varying process yeah it totally varied um the first song that was that had vocals uh i really wanted to set off on the right path and i did it with all three guys in the studio yeah and we sat around and we talked about politics and we talked about music and we talked about um what we wanted to try to say with the song and i really wanted to start the the record that way because that's it, it it's something i miss and I think there's a, a bit of that on this record in the sense that I think for the first time in a long time, or well, maybe ever, I kind of allowed myself to like, no, I, I'm going to make like a song that that kind of feels like a certain era. You yeah. know what I mean? Whether it's rocket fuel or, or something like that. Now, it's never going to be my intention, hopefully, to make a record that's entirely nostalgic. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I, I think at that point you're then sort of you know you've worked yourself into a corner a bit yeah but as i'm older i'm kind of like well okay i've been doing this a while and i feel like i'm getting less nutrition from some of the newer stuff i'm listening to maybe there's a reason for that maybe i should allow myself to revisit some of these things from the past and and some of these things that i i know how to do and incorporate them, whether it's a scratch solo. I mean, who does a scratch solo anymore? Yeah. What does yeah. it even mean, right? Yeah. Um, in the same way that guitar solos are seen as so tasteless and, you know, kind of ego-driven. And I just go, well, whatever. It feels right to me right now Yeah. to do it. And at the very least, I'm going to be pretty assured that there's not going to be anything else coming out that week that sounds like that. Yeah. So all of these things go into it and... As far as the vocal stuff, yeah, I wanted to have new people, more established artists. Yeah, of course. So, how was it, or or, or how is it, releasing on 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 mass appeal? Because that's in an era when record labels are, f- are falling at the what the wayside. It feels like a label that's still got that that credibility. I remember uh, uh, talking to to Mike and LP when Run the Jewels were, were signed this their second record to mass appeal. I mean, it helps that it's gotten. Nas at the at the at the forefront. He's Mr. Credibility, really. How is that to be released on a, a label like that? And again, to to be releasing a record that provides both versions of DJ Sh- a Shadow. The fact it's got this amazing intricate um, instrumental side, but then you've also got more what Mass Appeal is is known for: rap tracks and real just. Well, uh, I mean, first off. It doesn't really get any easier. I still feel like I stick out like a sore thumb on the label. Right. Because I do in a way. You know what I mean? There, there, there isn't anybody else on the label that's my age. Right, yeah. There isn't anybody else on the label that um, 
is making anything that sounds like the, the the instrumental suite, or even for that matter, most of the the rap tracks. Because you know, if I want to put horns on a record, I feel like I have the knowledge and the capability, and you know, I know how to write music now. Yeah, um, I can write a horn part. Like, okay, I can write the part for the baritone sax or whatever. I can, I can do these things, and. I think maybe before I would have felt a little like, oh, I don't know, I should try to maybe fit in a little bit or maybe I should do – but if I'm honest, I've just never really been good at doing that. I mean, yeah. no matter what label I was on. Um, and even when I was on Moax, I was going out of my way to distinguish myself. Like if you recall, Moax, a lot of the sleeves have a kind of same feel. He wanted them to all kind of have an OB strip thing on the side. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, you know, artwork of a certain t- – and I, w- I just would come in and go, I'm going to do whatever the opposite is yeah. of all the other – because I want to stand out. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, so, yeah, Massapel is, is a good platform. But, um, you know, even within that, I think it's safe to say, like, I really just don't care anymore about what other people think about what I do. Yeah. And I know that may sound a bit, you know, like – but if everybody's trying to get on this rap playlist or this or that, it's like I just kind of walk in and I just go, I can't control that. Yeah. The only thing I can control is try – and it's, it's all I've ever wanted to try to do is contribute to the art form and make something different. Yeah. Like as much as I love DJ Premier, I don't want to make a beat like the one he just made for Group Home or, or yeah. J-Ru. Yeah. As much as I like Pete Rock, I don't want to make a you know, I want to be inspired by the artists that inspire me and then apply my own personality to it, my own ideas, my own uh, experiences to hopefully give people an alternative. And 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 that must come from having experience in the game and being here here a while. And that leads me I wanted to ask you to kind of tell me a a little bit about the track Rosie because that kind of feels like it's that journey you've right. you've, you've put that journey you, not that this is the end of a journey that's right. why I kind of said earlier as a payoff of, right. of the journey rather than an end but yeah. Rosie kind of seems to tell that journey along there so 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 what was the idea and what made you you go that way on the track well first off um the the vocal sample it was a texture and a, and a kind of I don't know. It had a feel unlike anything I had ever worked with before. Right. And there's something kind of um, folky about it. There's something kind of gospely about it. There's something that sounds like from another era. And and again, the the voices are have a kind of forcefulness to them that you just don't hear anymore. And so I like finding something that's like, okay, it ticks all the boxes. I've never really worked with anything that sounds like this. I feel like I can take it in a direction I've never gone. It doesn't sound like what you hear when you turn on the radio yeah. anywhere. And maybe this will be, you know, maybe there's some some uh, earth to be tilled here with this. Yeah. So what happened, though, is I started off and I kind of went, okay, well, and it was like the last song I worked on on the record. Yeah. So I had they're all always these... the best. I'm, I'm convinced that they're always really? the best because it feels like, oh, the record's finished but just one more thing, just that kind of more. Columbo, yeah. kind of yeah. just one more thing. And then it's, yeah. Yeah. And so I started off by like, okay, I've got this little um, file on my drive of all these beats that I basically shaped up to use, yeah. like 
took all the pops and clicks out of them, made them sonically how I wanted them. All right, let me throw these against the wall. And But as I was doing it, I was kind of like, this is kind of me in idle mode. You know what I mean? Like that, I, yeah. I'm not really pushing anything by doing this. This is, but I'll keep going. I'll see where it goes. And I kind of got to that minute and a half mark, and and then just stopped and went, okay, well, this is not going to sustain a full song. It's not going to hold my interest for a full song. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to completely hard left it. Yeah. And that represents the second kind of portion of the song, and and it represents, I think, a little bit more of the. I mean, growing up, this is what, I mean, I, I think it, it's worth touching on because it's something I don't get a chance to express very often, but growing up where I did, when I did, I think a lot of people assume that I was into the day laws and the tribes and the, mm-hmm. but I was also into the ghetto boys and yeah. I was into, you know, I loved NWA and I loved, um, too short and I loved like stuff that. I think later in the 90s, people sort of identified with one or another. Completely. And, and they didn't like the, the you know, G-Funk, ugh, get rid of it, you know. But I was like, actually, I like this. Yeah. I like, you know, later when Outcast came along, I like this. I like Juvenile. I like, as someone who followed Southern rap for as long as I did, like, I like 3-6 Mafia. Yeah. So... Then the second portion of the song is a nod a little bit more to that side mm-hmm. of things. Um, although, you know, updated, hopefully, sonically with a lot of the sound design and stuff that's more inspired by the contemporary beat scene and the post-dubstep and the trappy kind of stuff. Because to me, that was really where the innovation was occurring sonically, not in hip-hop. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of that. And then the third portion is more possibly towards i think the the mindset of the the album as a whole which was more melody and more chords and yeah. don't stop at just three different melody lines playing against each other to five six seven eight how far can you take it yeah um and having the beats be a little more like wonky and and less rigid so um yeah, it was kind of a journey through three different production mentalities in a way. Yeah, I love that. So at what point during or post the record do you start thinking about what am I going to do live? How's this this going to work live? And how's that developed over the years? Because kind of post-Uncle, your live shows were quite visual-based and, and uh, an experience of sorts. But then from what I've read, the kind of the low-end theory guys... The, Daddy Kev and all that, who had that amazing a club night. A friend of mine who doesn't know is a club night in LA that stopped a year or so ago now. Yeah, um, and yeah, our well, last last time I was out there, I was, I was with No Can Do and got to have a brief chat with Daddy Kev and Gas Lamp and all these people. And it kind of felt like that changed your vision on what you can do live or how you can do live or what you have to do live. So, what, so where are you at now and what's the journey been? I think. The biggest um, impetus for me to put together a live show that moved beyond just two turntables and a mixer was being given the opportunity to play at festival stages. Yeah, of course. And that started in 99. Now, if you rewind, it actually was offered in 97, but I wasn't ready. I was like shitting myself just because I don't know. I, I can't do this. And then in between 97 and 99, toured more and more with the Quantum guys, 
toured more and more on my own right. And then I was put on festival stages and um, playing before groups like Massive Attack or playing before and after rock groups and just kind of going, okay, the novelty of seeing a hip-hop DJ on a festival stage is only going to go so far for so long. 100%, yeah. And at that time it was like maybe there would be a rapper, but it was still 85 90% rock and roll driven. Yeah. And it just occurred to me, okay, well, I don't want to not provide the same uh, amount of entertainment value beat for beat that a rock group, you know, like I want to provide that. I don't want to meet or exceed what they're bringing. Yeah. Now I'm never going to be the kind to like jump up and down and wave a <laughs> cigarette in the air and like, come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that was never me ever. Yeah. So that's why visuals. And yeah. that started on the 2002 tour. Um, I mean, as far as today or what I'm going to do, it's, I think the goal, my goal when I go out is the same as any band, which is represent the music well, um, try to, you know, deliver on expectations of the people who pay their money to, to, to come out. Now, obviously, I don't think the expectations of somebody coming to see, you know, they know what I'm about at this yeah. point, I think. So really, it's about representing the music well. Um, and trying to give them more than what they're expecting. So whether that's visuals or, or um, you know, what we do with them or, or how we put it together or how I put the set together. On the most recent tour a couple of years ago, I was DJing. I had, a, like, digital drums that I was triggering samples from and literally, like, playing the drum kit in my own sort of backwards way. Yeah. Um, but at least they're seeing, okay, he's doing stuff. This isn't just pressing play. It's there's actual like I can see his hands are moving. Yeah, there's things happening, and you know, it's funny to say, but in 2019, that actually does go a long way. Yeah, it's 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 mad the amount of stuff that you have to l look at. But and again, Dan Lasak, who I used to work with and tour with, had this all the time. He was like, right, I can do it just as good like this but i'm going to add more stuff to make it harder so the crowd know that yeah. i'm not just the guy in the background who's pressing play yeah. and kind of standing there and pretending it's like i need to have more to show them that i'm doing all of this this live you're not just hearing a record being played and then maybe a bit of scratching another record you know having that yeah. that fuller feel it, it is crazy though in 20 you know as we're sitting here and and CD turntables have been around now for about 18 years, maybe yeah. a little less, 17, 18 years. And, you know, all the sound systems have completely been recalibrated for bass that wasn't possible in the old days. But it is pretty mad when I think about the fact that I used to get up in front of, you know, 15, 20,000 people with just records. Yeah. Because you couldn't do it now. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't do it. I've tried. I still have problems lots of times, even with Serato and things like that, with the bass on the stage. Yeah. Literally, like, the ne it doesn't matter what you do or, or how you have your settings. If the needle won't stay on the record, you're going to struggle. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the bass is just making everything. So, yeah, sometimes it's like, hmm, you know, is the is the effort worth it sometimes? Because yeah. if you're not even able to do it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it can be a problem. It's fascinating how the developments can cause more problems and and restrictions yeah. or, or false changes and and the difference of sounds in locations. I loved you mentioning earlier hearing 
jungle out of a car going by. I, I, I think j- j- jungle is one of them j- genres that I still can't decide if it sounds best inside a car or outside of a car. Yeah. It, either of those are better than in a club, are better than on headphones. It's that yeah. that feeling that it's going to make whatever is playing it fall apart in a minute. It's making yeah. things rattle. It's making things move. It's not got that, here's the purest, the best speakers, the sound's perfect. It's like, no, that's what's yeah. that gives the excitement of it. Well, and you could say the same thing about beats. I mean... Um when when you you know one of my favorite things to do whenever i meet people like nas person to person and you're in a studio or something that i have two or three songs that i pull out of my hard drive that i know he never heard that came out in the day that is like all of the things that everybody loved about that time at 10 yeah you know what i mean so like one of them is um this one by phil most chill called um on tempo jack i think it's called on tempo jack yeah. And um, it's it's so dirty and it's so messed up and it's so it's just but it, but it's so rugged. Yeah. And you can play it to someone like Nas or E40 or P- people that remember that era and they just become little kids again. It's yeah. like, God damn, this shit was so fresh and you can't replicate it. You know what I mean? It was a moment. It was yeah. just a moment. And the electric, you know, it's like when people talk about um you know, trying to get that funk sound or whatever. Like, it's what people, I think, a lot of times don't understand. It, it The playing is part of it, sure. But it doesn't matter how in the pocket you are or the feel. The microphones are different. Even electricity is different. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's the same with vinyl. The plating process is different now. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, so it's like it, you're only ever going to get so far when you when you try to kind of recreate something i think yeah it's it's fa- it's fascinating to watch the developments of of crate diggers in 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 the digital age and, and such i was backstage at um a big daddy kane gig and biz Marquee was literally going through his hard drive playing acapellas to dj yoda that he knew he wouldn't have and it's like the acapella vocal to every to like a Doors song and just just some, some some crazy stuff, but it's finding ways to still have that excitement of finding that thing because in theory everything is available to to everyone, but that's a lot to look through still, right? It's the same as being in a, a, a record store and having a, 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 to hunt through everything. So is yeah. there that buzz of having those tracks and those things that you like? Have a listen to this. Well, this for is, me, this has been overlooked. Yeah, for me there is, but it's an interesting point that you make because I mean. On one hand, I deeply love DJ culture. I deeply love hip-hop culture. I deeply love the roots of it all. There's a lot of things that I love in music. And by and large, I I like to just talk about the things that I like. I don't like to spend a lot of time shitting on someone or their methods. But there are things that just, you know, I won't do anymore. Like... Co-chemist and I recently were talking about, like, should we do a brain freeze thing again? You know, right. brain freeze was this set where we first did in 1999 where we used all 45s. And it become, it became this kind of moment. Yeah. And certainly for mixtapes, it was like, you know, heavily bootlegged as a, as a mix CD. And, and um, it inspired, I think, a lot of people to start paying attention to the genre or to the format of 45s and all we were trying to say at the time was this is kind of a it's kind of a fun little thing to do there's an additional 
challenge in trying to scratch on these things. And there's things on these formats, A, that didn't come out in any other format, and B, wow, isn't it crazy that it came out on that format? Yeah, like yeah. certain rap tracks and things like that. Um, so it was a thing we did. Fast forward to 2019 when people reissue every possible song on 45, and we just kind of went, you know what? We're going to leave that to someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We kind of did that, and that's not something it doesn't feel vital anymore yeah it's sort of like when people ask me to spin funk 45s and i'm like i don't know man i mean when we started playing funk 45s out it felt really vital and it felt like we were reintroducing something into the ether that had been suppressed yeah i mean growing up i never heard funk yeah anywhere you know what i mean and Certainly not that kind of deep funk sound that we were trying to identify and curate, like the really wild stuff. You just never heard it. Yeah. It was truly underground music. Well, fast forward to 2019, you hear it every time you turn on the television. Yeah. And you kind of go, okay, so what am I accomplishing now by by playing that out? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I found some other you know, rare stuff or whatever, and I still like it. I still listen to it all day at home. But I think when you it, – it, it's about taking a stance and saying, that was lots of fun, not doing it anymore. Yeah. And I think there's something kind of political as a musician when you take those stands, even if nobody else knows about them. Yeah. I'd say another one for me would be, you know, all these compilations for the last like 20 years that are like – it, it, it's it's sort of like get a famous DJ or an artist to curate a, a CD or a playlist of music that they like to listen to, and yeah. we'll go out and license the tracks. And I always hoped somebody would recognize the fact that I never did that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I was asked f at least 15 times to Amazing. do each and every one of them. Yeah. And I always just went, you know, I'm a DJ. I pride myself on my mixes. Why am I just going to give you a list of 10 songs yeah. that have to be well-known enough that you can actually license easily? Yep. I'm like, this literally goes against my entire ethos as a DJ. <laughs> yeah. And I know nobody notices, and, and nobody ever would notice if I didn't point it out, but again, to me, that's an intentional thing. Yeah. That's a, that's, I'm making a statement even without making a statement. Yeah. I love that. So I'll I'll wrap things up now as we've gone comfortably over the hour mark. Um, so what's ahead? Obviously, it's the new record, and then you're going to be touring it. Is is that as far ahead as you're looking at the moment? Because you kind of you've buried yourself in creating this thing that you need to now. Yeah, that's the focus. Or yeah, I like to allow for opportunities to present themselves, and for me to be able to pursue them without locking into like. Oh, and then it's this album, and then yeah, that album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of times when I've allowed that space in between albums, really interesting things have just, like, fallen into my lap. Yeah. Um, I mean, after uh, I finished touring in 2012, we were asked to do the Bambata, you know, thing, Kai Chemist and I again, to mention Kai Chemist, where, you know, literally it was like, he had donated his record collection to Cornell University, and they wanted us to take his records on tour wow. one last time. Wow. And who could, I mean, yeah. like that was literally <laughs> yeah. just so close to my heart and, and unbelievable. So I would have never been able to do that if, you know, I was all, 
you know, super planned out. So yeah, I'm going to, I mean, the record will be out in a couple of months. I, I assume I'll tour for it. Although even that is a bit sort of hasn't taken shape yet. yet. Right. Yet, yet. Yeah. Yet, yet. <laughs> hasn't taken shape yet, yet. Um, yeah, I mean, but I'm sure I will. And uh, as far as the future, I mean, I, as far as I, f- I feel like I'm playing with house money at this point. Yeah. Because I definitely didn't see myself being able to continue to, be, you know, have a platform at this level yeah. for as long as I've had. So. I feel lucky and uh, grateful. The, the, uh, the last question I had was was t- t- twenty plus years in. Do you feel like DJ Sh- Shadow, or do you still have moments where you feel like that high school kid playing with samples? And the reason I've not asked it is you've kind of told that it doesn't feel as if you have the pressure to be DJ Shadow at all. You're no. you're you. You're making stuff. You're doing what feels right for you at the time, and and that's the perfect position to be in at this stage, right? Yeah, I I I I agree. Um I mean, definitely there's been as I talked about earlier, there's been peaks and valleys and not only in terms of I think my ability to connect with my own fan base, but um just of enjoyment as an artist, as somebody yeah. that you know, there's been times where it's just like, "Oh, fuck. What's the point?" Yeah. I mean, I'll always make music, but do I need to put it out there and subject myself to X, Y, and Z that I seem to not be able to deal with as well yeah. as maybe some other people. And then, you know, the last record, we had a goal, and that goal was to sort of refocus the dialogue to be about the now. And on that album, I had my most successful song that I've ever made right. in Nobody Speak. And so that really, I think, finally washed away this line of thinking that where it's like, are you still trying to live up to X? Yeah. And as much as I can sit around all day and politely say no, you know, there is a part of you that's like, well, what I think only goes so far. I suppose it's really down to what other people think. And if that's the the narrative that other people are pushing, it doesn't, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Um, but then nobody speak happened, and and I think that's kind of really sealed that whole line of questioning and that line of thought. So I feel I, I think possibly more um, refreshed and more just able to be myself. I feel more comfortable just being able to say, "Well, no, this album is a hundred percent what I want." Yeah, um, and not worry about necessarily like how that sounds to other people, whether it sounds. As though you're you're being inconsiderate to your fans or whatever. I think now my fans Fuck know. The fans. Huh? No. Fuck no. 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 Facts that wasn't quote. even my, that Facts wasn't that even <laughs> that wasn't even the sentiment when I said it. No, exactly. But it's one. But again, it's like you know, just being a bit sort of cheeky and living yeah, in the moment. Yeah, no, and, I completely understand. And so, yeah, yeah, fuck anyway. them in a in a throwaway way, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a sort of well. I, I love that I brought it back to that to end on, so <laughs> yeah. it's now going to be the thing that comes out of this one. No, God, let that not be the case. No, it's but, not. It's not. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's, yeah, no, we can end it there, really. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, well thank you very much for your time. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, cheers, man. Great thank to talk right. to you.
You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. And there we go. That was DJ Shadow. I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, As I mentioned, his new album, um, Apathetic Age, is out November 15th. So get in on that now. It's cracking. Uh, Yeah. Um, I'm doing another bonus episode on Friday. I know I did a bonus episode last week, but... Hell, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, so I thought I'd just keep giving you these treats. This time it's a mini-episode, and it's with director James Mangold, who I was so excited to talk to. You'll hear, it's a mini-episode, but it's one of my favourites, because you'll hear how excited I am, because I'm such a fan of his work, from Copland to Logan to his new film, Le Mans 66, which, spoiler alert, I think is going to be in my films of the year. Um, So yeah... That'll be out on Friday. As I mentioned in the intro, please come and see Kill Ben Like. Did I mention the name of the film in the intro? I don't think I did. If I didn't, buddy peace, can you edit in the words? The film's called Kill Ben Like, somewhere in there. Um, (laughs) Because I don't think I did. Man, that sucks. Um, Anyway, come see that on the 22nd, as I mentioned... I will be doing some kind of appearance at the Swiss Cottage, Odeon Swiss Cottage screening, View Piccadilly, and what was the other one? View Shepherd's Bush. Uh, you can get all the tickets through our screen. It's on in Thurrock. It's on in Glasgow. It's on in Belfast. It's on in Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, all over the shop. So, um, yeah, go and see that. I'll see you all on Friday. Have a lovely, lovely evening or morning or day. I don't know what time time you're listening to this. You might be on on the toilet. Have a lovely toilet time. Um, This podcast is finished.